today I'm really excited to talk to you about the, the work that is near and dear to my heart on human health at the intersection of these two different disciplines, you know, the environment and humanitarian crises. My work as an environmental epidemiologist is primarily to understand how the health of the environment influences the health of humans. And the way that I like to do that is by applying principles of epidemiology and principles of public health in general to international low-income contexts, particularly those that are impacted by complex humanitarian crises. So to give you just an overview of global trends in displacement, and by displacement, I mean people who are removed from their homes, either forcibly or they have no other choice other than to leave their homes. So what we're looking at here are, like I said, the global trends in displacement. And this graph breaks it down by types of people who are displaced. So refugees, asylum seekers, IDPs who are internally displaced people, and then stateless people. And the reason why these distinctions are important is because these people are entitled to different types of rights and different types of protections under international humanitarian law. So for example, a refugee, like we often hear about refugees in the news, those are people who actually cross an international border and it's for a very specific reason, um, for persecution basically. But then we also have asylum seekers and then IDPs, internally displaced people. And the internally displaced people are the light blue color that's increasing really dramatically. Those are people who are displaced from their homes, but they don't actually cross an international border. And the reason that that's important is because without crossing an international border, they're not entitled to any specific kinds of protections under international humanitarian law. And the reason why they're actually displaced from their homes to begin with is often because of their own host governments, right? Their own environment in which they live, which is causing them to have to leave their homes for whatever reason, but then they're not able to get any protections once they leave their homes. So this is the group that I am particularly interested in. Displacement happens for a lot of different reasons, but there's two main categories that we can think about displacement in terms of conflict and also disasters. So we can see over time, we see a pretty good mix in terms of conflict-related displacement and also disaster-related displacement. But disaster-related displacement is increasing over time, and it's, it's accounting for a huge proportion of the actual numbers who are displaced from their homes. Starting with the easy one, conflict-related displacement, conflict-related disasters. And I say it's easy because it's easy to conceptualize. That's war. People are displaced from their homes. They are subjected to humanitarian terrors when they experience war and conflict. This is a cool um, chart that I like to use because number one, I'm a visual learner. And number two, I think that it does a really good job of actually displaying the trends in conflict over time. If you just like take a stand back and look at just the shapes and the colors, the light blue represents low intensity conflict. The dark blue represents, represents medium intensity conflict. And then the red represents high intensity conflict. And if you're just looking at the shapes here, the distribution of the conflicts between 2006 and 2016 has remained relatively stable. But if you look at the number in the middle, which represents the absolute number of conflicts over this decade, we see that conflicts are increasing pretty significantly over time. I'm a public health person. We care about this because of obviously the direct conflict-related deaths, 
and morbidity and mortality. But we also care about this because of the secondary displacements and the secondary morbidity and mortality that are happening. This chart from, or this graphic from the New York Times is kind of old, but I think that it does a really good time of, good job of depicting the nonviolent deaths and the nonviolent morbidity and mortality that are happening related to conflict. This particular example is in the Congo, which has been the recipient of high intensity conflict for decades now. And you can see here that for every one violent death, so every one combat related death, we're seeing 62 nonviolent deaths. And these are like by and large preventable deaths, right? We're seeing things like malnutrition, respiratory disease, fever, deaths from childbirth. And overall, the vast majority of people who are being impacted are young kids, right? So these aren't people who are involved directly in the conflict. And then the second type of disaster that we think about when we're talking about humanitarian responses are natural disasters. So these are things like earthquakes, cyclones, heavy rain events, drought, fires, you name it. These ones are like easy to conceptualize in theory, but they're kind of hard to pin down. But I wanna kind of go back on that a little bit because when we think about natural disasters, we actually have to think about the fact that they're not natural. Natural disasters do not exist, right? So when we think about natural disaster, disasters and we use that term, we actually have to be careful. And it's something that I'm learning every day to try and increase my vocabulary to start referring to them as natural hazard related disasters. And the reason is because disasters themselves are the product of hazard times vulnerability times exposure. So natural hazards exist all the time. We have heavy rainfall events, we have earthquakes, we have monsoons, fires, and so on. But they only become a problem when that hazard meets vulnerability, when that hazard meets exposure. So if there's not a group of people who are living in this area who are vulnerable, who are exposed, then we're not going to have a natural hazard-related disaster. But increasingly, we're seeing as the population grows, as we become increasingly urban, as conflict is rising, as natural disasters are rising, we're seeing a huge rise in these natural hazard-related disasters and disaster risk. So like I said, this is kind of like new terminology. So these graphics are from MDAT, which is the Emergency um, Management Database, uh, which is really closely related to the UN. And they're still using the term natural disasters. So it's shifting, we're trying to work towards it. But as you can see in this graph, over the past hundred years, we're seeing a huge increase in the number of natural hazard related disasters across the world. Again, not a huge issue in and of itself until these natural hazard related disasters meet with some, some sort of vulnerability or exposure. If we just zoom in on the past 50 years, we can see this trend line is increasing at a pretty concerning rate. And it's actually projected to increase by 40% by 2030, which is quite a substantial increase. In terms of like the proportion of natural hazard related disasters that are happening and their attributable causes, we're seeing overall the vast majority are due to an increase in floods. And this is undoubtedly related to climate change. 
So again, not a huge issue in and of itself until these disasters are met with some sort of exposure or vulnerability. So when we think about the actual number of people who are impacted by these disasters, we see that that's increasing pretty steadily as well. So what does this all mean? We have these conflict-related disasters. We have these natural hazard-related disasters. At the end of the day, over 44,000 people are newly displaced from their homes every single day. That's the entire population of Burlington displaced from their home every day. And the reason why we care about this, besides like obviously the obvious reasons, are that once you're impacted by a disaster, your mortality increases significantly. So this is going back to that graph about the um, nonviolent related deaths in the Congo, for example. So once you're displaced from your home, your risk of morbidity and mortality skyrockets. This is also concerning because refugee crises aren't just like one-off things where people are displaced from their homes and then they're able to go back. On average, refugee crises last for approximately 26 years. So these can be entire generations of people who are born in refugee camps and end up staying there for their entire lives. So disasters happen and people are moving a lot. And this graph is cool because like I said, I'm a visual learner, but it also demonstrates where people are coming from and where people are going to. And if you look at just where people are coming from, you can see that they're coming from um, pretty natural hazard related areas that are impacted heavily by natural hazard related disasters and also conflict related disasters. But then they're going to those same kinds of places, right? So they're, they're not like going to places that are offering them protections from either natural or conflict related disasters. So as a result, we're seeing refugee camps spreading up all over the place. And we're seeing refugee camps in rural areas, but also in cities. And we're seeing that they're going from being these temporary settlements to these long protracted settlements. Like I said, the average is 26 years. And then they're going from small to medium to actual cities with like functioning city infrastructure. This is a picture here of Zatari camp, which is one of the world's largest refugee camps in Jordan. And I wanted to include, I probably should have, this cool YouTube video that shows a time lapse of the growth of Zatari. It's just totally striking how quickly it grows. So from a public health perspective, this is obviously a really concerning issue, right? When a population or an individual is impacted by a disaster, in a humanitarian response. We see a damage and a breakdown of infrastructure. We see high levels of food insecurity, crowding, water and sanitation issues. You have to think about where people are getting their water from. You have to think about where people are going to the bathroom. And obviously these people are under a huge amount of stress, which as you know, can lead to a number of adverse health outcomes. We see disabilities related to injury. So people are fleeing conflict or they're fleeing natural disasters and they're at high risk of injury. And then of course, violence and diseases are really, really common in these populations. So when we try and actually do something about this, there's a lot of challenges. There's of course challenges to language and culture. And there's challenges in the fact that there's mass displacement happening and it's hard to track where people are going. There's also the challenge of conflict and of poor accessibility. 
of resources and of coordination. I took this picture when I was in South Sudan and it is such a um, volatile situation that you're not actually allowed to take pictures like anywhere. So I'm taking this picture driving down the road like with my camera kind of tucked in, not being able to be seen by anyone. And if I had to do it over again, I probably would not have done that because it's um, probably pretty dangerous. But it just goes to show of the difficulties of operating in a humanitarian context. So this all leads me to what I'm interested in, which is this nexus of health, the environment, and conflict. We have so many different types of displacement, right? Like I've, I feel like I've kind of reiterated that enough. We have these disaster-induced displacements, but then we also have the displacements that are provoked by climate change. But then we also have this unique type of displacement that actually happens within the refugee camps themselves, where people are moving within the refugee camps, where people's homes get destroyed because of climate risks, like fires, landslides, or floods, and they have to actually move locations within the camps itself. And so all this interest of mine led to my current research project, which is funded by the Global Infectious Disease Corps over in Weiner College of Medicine. And it's called Understanding the Impacts of Environmental Factors on Diarrheal Disease in the World's Largest Refugee Camp, which is in Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh. And this is an aerial photo of Cox's Bazaar. Interestingly, if you just like Google Cox's Bazaar, it's actually a resort town. So it's this beautiful beach town that is, um, I mean, yeah, it, it looks like beautiful, but then when you zoom out, you're seeing these huge, densely populated, massive, expansive refugee camps. It's in just the juxtaposition of it is really drawing. So this project is a highly collaborative effort. Um, Pablo Bos and Brendan Fisher are collaborators on this project and they are affiliated with the Gund as well. And then I recently roped in Jillian to help with the uh, forest cover analyses part of it. And then we have these two amazing research assistants who have been working on pulling data um, that, as you'll see, can get a little bit complicated and tedious as we go along. So they've done an amazing job. So just to give you a background on the situation, Cox's Bazaar is the fastest and largest growing refugee camp in the world. Um, the, the crisis itself unfolded in 2017. Um, the people living in Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh, are generally from Myanmar, previously known as Burma, and they're Rohingya refugees. And the reason why that's important is because the government of, of Myanmar basically said, anyone who's Rohingya, you are not a Myanmar national, we do not claim you, and therefore they become stateless people. And again, that's important because they're not entitled to international protections under international humanitarian law. And the reason why that I mentioned that is because this huge camp that's growing and growing and growing is really at the whims of the Bangladeshi government. They can at any point in time fail to um, continue to keep it up or um, shut it down. They've threatened to um, send these refugees back to Myanmar, but Myanmar says, no, that you can't come here because you're not ours. So it's a really precarious situation and it's growing really, really rapidly. And so as a result, there's been severe crowding, inadequate infrastructure, poor water and sanitation, and overall a lack of adequate healthcare. 
This picture um, demonstrates where the camps are built. They're built on these really, really steep um, landslide prone areas. So it probably doesn't come as a surprise that when a host government says, yes, come here, we'll accept you as refugees, we'll build a refugee camp for you. It's not on prime real estate, right? It's on lands that no one really wants. It's on lands that aren't fertile, prone to flooding, prone to landslides, and so on. And in this camp, diarrhea disease is the number one cause of morbidity and mortality of kids under the age of five, which is also the number one cause of mortality um, in kids across the globe. And um, why this is important for a lot, of, I mean, it's obviously important for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because diarrhea risk within the camp is significantly greater than diarrhea risk outside of the camp. And we care about that because, or that's an important tidbit to know, is because there's something going on there. Like why are kids within the camp more prone to diarrhea than kids outside of the camp? What are the levels of protections that these kids are or are not getting? And why is this disparity happening? This is also combined with the fact that Bangladesh is it's, you know, placed on the Bay of Bengal, which is highly prone to these cyclone events that are increasing with climate change. So this map just displays the risk of climate change or of uh, cyclones in the Cox's Bazaar region. I probably should have mentioned when I say Cox's Bazaar refugee camp, it's really a conglomerate of refugee camps. I think that there's something like 35 that are actually active within the region. And so you have, here's the biggest camp here, but then there's also a number of different camps located throughout the Cox's our region. Um, but no matter where the camp is located, they're all at really high risk of cyclone damage. The camps are also really prone to congestion. 93% of, of the population lives below the standard um, this is a typo, it should be 3.5 square meters per person, 45 square meters would be like ginormous, um, 3.5 square meters per person. Um, so that's being violated in the vast majority of the population. The population in Cazar is also really, really prone to flooding. Like I said, not prime real estate. And you can see all the blue here is the areas that uh, experience flooding on a regular basis. The population is highly reliant on um, water that is provided to them. And primarily that's through hand pumps. There's about a hundred residents per pump, which is a lot. So the hand pumps are like the ones that you think about that you like, yeah, pump with your hand. Um, and the water quality is okay, but it's not great. 72% has no E. coli, which means that there's a pretty good proportion that does have E. coli. And that may or may not be due to the fact that 50% of them are in flood prone areas. So the red overlaid here shows the areas where the um, hand pumps are in a floodplain. There is some sort of a network of piped water in the camp, but it's not great. Um, it supplies, um, you know, technically a good portion of the camp. Um, and it's better than the hand pumps in terms of water quality. So 92% don't have E. coli, but people mix these water sources all the time, even though there've been outreach efforts to not mix them. And so when you mix hand pump with piped water, 
the water quality goes down, you may or may not be exposed to um, some sort of bacteria in the water. And um, so there have been a lot of public health initiatives to use things like aqua tabs to clean up the water, but they by and large don't work. People think that they have a funny taste, they think they have a funny smell, even though they're tasteless, they are odorless, um, but they are not being used by and large. Uh, in terms of latrines, there's a good distribution of toilets within the camp, 35 people per latrine, that's kind of a lot, right? Um, not necessarily a problem in and of itself until, again, you start to think of things like flood-prone areas. 25% um, are in these flood-prone areas, which are make these latrines at a huge risk of overflow and contamination. So our study is attempting to understand the role of the natural environment on diarrhea in this camp. And we're doing that through um, two different primary aims. The first is trying to evaluate whether there's a difference in the incidence of diarrhea disease before and after a cyclone event. And then the second aim tries to take that a step further by looking at whether or not tree forest cover loss around the camp modifies that association. The way we're trying to do it is by using publicly available data. And the reason we're trying to use publicly available data is because of all the challenges that I laid out before. And so what we're using is, are these epidemiological highlights from the WHO. And they are literally these PDF PowerPoints. They're like the most frustrating thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm working on getting them to just like email me a spreadsheet, um, but we're working on that. And so what our amazing research assistants have been doing have been painstakingly going through these PDF PowerPoints that look like this when you actually get to them and pulling out acute watery diarrhea, bloody diarrhea, and other diarrhea. So record keeping has been like, okay, it hasn't been great, but there is um, data from the functioning health clinics within the camp. And so we've been pulling out these different types of diarrhea we've been pulling out the different types or the, the different cyclones that have happened um, since 2017 when the camp um, became a thing. But what ended up happening is we're having a hard time kind of making our data meet up. And by that, I mean that we only really have data beginning in 2019. So again, we're missing that two-year gap between 2017 and 2019. But between 2019 and 2021, we've had um, four cyclones being registered in the area. And we have variables on cyclones, on diarrhea incidents, morbidity, the population of the camp, health clinics. And recently, thanks to Jillian, we have tree forest cover loss. We kind of have some household indicators. And the reason why I say we kind of have household indicators is because they are collected pretty infrequently and they're often yes or no questions. So we haven't really established the utility of those, um, but I'm not writing them off yet because they have certain indicators like how often do you use aqua tabs? How often do you wash your hands? Where do you get your water from? Have you had diarrhea in the past six weeks? Um, so we're hoping to figure out a way to include those in a bit of a more useful way. And then the variables we really, really want are the 2017 and the 2018 data precipitation data. We have this data on cyclones, but 
as you'll see, it hasn't been overly useful. And so we're hoping to get precipitation data as well. And we want data on temperature. And I also want your guys' advice on what other data we need to answer this research question. And this is kind of what we've seen so far. <clears throat> if you look at, um, so the, the light blue here represents the rainy season, and then the dark blue is the peak rainy season. And that is the, the solid line indicates um, the trend line, which is a time series analysis looking at cyclones and diarrhea disease. And then the dotted line are the confidence intervals. So you can see that there's a little bit of seasonality there. And then the red asterisks are when a cyclone hits. So if you're like me and you're a visual learner, you're looking at this and you're like, I see nothing, right? You guys see anything? I don't really see anything. We're seeing cyclones happen and then we're seeing a decrease in diarrhea. We're seeing cyclone happen and an increase in diarrhea. And N of four, like, I don't know that we can really do anything with that at this point. But I tried to do something with it anyways. Um, I created these distributed lag models, which are basically models that allow us to see um, what happens one, two, three, four, five weeks after an event. So say a cyclone hits today, we don't expect to see a spike in diarrhea today, right? We, see, we expect to see a spike in diarrhea a little bit later down the line. When we look at the total cases of diarrhea, we see like maybe a trend, but not really. The line represents nothing significant and then these ginormous confidence intervals. When we look specifically at acute watery diarrhea, we start to see a little bit more of a trend, whereas um, the risk of diarrhea increases three weeks post cyclone. And then if we look at bloody diarrhea, we see kind of an opposing trend where your risk of bloody diarrhea spikes pretty quickly but then um, drops off pretty quickly. Again, with the huge caveat that none of these are significant, our N is really small, ginormous confidence intervals. But it's interesting nonetheless, because it demonstrates that there might be a potential causative mechanism that's happening. Did you order people? Oh, goodness. Nobody told me or anything, so I'm so sorry. No, you're good. I'm just trying to figure out who ordered. <laughs> so the reason why this is, um, has piqued my interest is because um, acute watery diarrhea and bloody diarrhea have different causative organisms, different mechanisms by which they operate. Acute watery diarrhea, we can think of as cholera, for example, that requires high inoculum, so a lot of the bacteria or a lot of the organism. Bloody diarrhea is the opposite, it's a low inoculum um, disease. And so we're seeing these opposing trends that may or may not be important, but something worth exploring. Um, and then I got news that there have been some cholera outbreaks. And so I thought this could potentially be interesting. So I added an arrow when there was a cholera outbreak. Um, yeah, nothing really important came up. You can see that there's like, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like we see a cholera case and we see an increase in diarrhea. That makes sense. We see a cholera case, increase in diarrhea. Um, and if you force the model to give you a risk, it gives you like a pretty big risk of, of four, but these ginormous confidence intervals again. So again, I'm not putting any weight in these results. They're just interesting to consider visually. 
And then just real quick, because we're short on time, um, the second part that we are starting to explore right now is investigating how tree forest cover loss impacts all of this. Obviously, with an influx of a million refugees, we're seeing a huge um, amount of deforestation happening. The pink represents areas that were deforested. Again, the crisis unfolded in 2017. So we're seeing between 2015 and 2020, a pretty massive amount of forest cover loss. And then when we look at that graphically, again, it makes sense in 2017, this huge spike in tree forest cover loss. The reason why I have yet to run the analyses to compare or to like identify whether there's an association between tree cover and diarrhea and cyclones is because our tree forest cover data goes until 2020, but our cyclone and our diarrhea data basically doesn't even start until then. So we've got this mismatch. But again, I've been hounding the um, team over in Cox's Lazar at the WHO to be able to provide us with this data and we're getting pretty close. Um, so hopefully I'll be able to give you guys an update on that eventually. In terms of next steps, um, there's a lot of text on here, but it's basically get more data, figure out how to analyze the data. Um, and to come up with some indicators for major events in the refugee camps, things like when, when certain areas got piped water um, and so on. And with that, I hope I didn't go too much over my time. Thank you guys so much for, again, taking your lunch hour and I'm interested to hear any questions that you have. When you were presenting about the refugee camp, I immediately thought about the type of interventions that might be taking place. Uh, for example, uh, typical uh, public health intervention, probably they are also widely distributing antibiotics among the children. And I'm thinking if foreign aid and that type of interventions might be a confounding in terms of the cyclones, because depending on the event, you might have like the intervention cease, the people would flee, like the people that are like, uh, conducting the interventions or providing the type of, of that type of help. Yeah. And after the event, some aid might also come depending on what is happening in the world because that's how foreign aid operates. So I'm, I'm thinking like at what level that might be a confounding factor. Oh yeah, I think at like a big level, that's probably a confounding factor. Um, and that's, I mean, if I'm gonna back way, way, way up, that was kind of the impetus for this research in general is to be able to provide humanitarian responders with almost an early warning system um, where we could say, hey, there's a cyclone forecasted, you're likely to see a spike in cholera cases, get the cholera board ready or something like that. But I think that you hit the nail on the head with all the potential confounding that could happen with, say, an oral cholera vaccination campaign um, or other types of yeah, humanitarian relief or programmatic efforts. I don't, I don't know that we can necessarily adjust for that um, because there's so many different players. So I think that we'd be able to adjust for things like, yeah, like vaccination campaigns. But I'd love to hear your ideas on how to potentially adjust for the rest. There's so much going on in the camps, you know, all the time. Yeah. I just have a question that maybe I missed because I came in a couple minutes late. Where are the data coming from on health outcomes, diarrhea, and things? The WHO. So they do a 
survey every year? So they, um, there's a bunch of clinics in the camp uh -huh. run by various NGOs like MSF, Save the Children, what have you. And they are a part of the, um, I probably should have explained this, but they're a part of the cluster system that's run by the UN. Okay. And the WHO heads the health cluster in Cox's, Cox's Bazaar. Yeah. And so all of the different health clinics report to the health cluster and then the WHO reports it out. Okay. So these are like reported cases when someone shows up at a clinic. Exactly. So we're and missing they, all the people who don't show up at the clinic. Yeah. But are they mandatory reported? So like everybody who does show up gets counted? Yeah. And that started in 2019? So it technically started in 2017. I just don't have access to that data because it wasn't the crisis unfolded so quickly that they didn't have like as great of record keeping at that time in that no one was publishing these super annoying PowerPoints yeah. um, at that point. But the data does exist somewhere. Exist. Yeah. And well, we've got an MOU that's like floating in the universe somewhere that will hopefully come back. Um, and then one more quick question. Yeah. All the data you showed us were that was that all of Cox's Bazaar aggregated into one thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, Go ahead. No, no, this one? Everything you showed, the graphs, everything. Is that just all of Cox's oh, Bazaar? Yes. Okay, that's all lumped into one thing. Yep. Um, which if I'm reading where you're going with this is something that we're trying to get around because, you know, if you go back to that map, yeah. there's actually the, um, the camps in all the different locations. Like it's important to know not only which camp is being impacted, but like which subunit in the camp is being impacted. So we're hoping that we'll be able to get the data that's disaggregated at the unit level to be able to say like, hey, camp 22 in unit 1A is having this huge, problem with diarrhea like let's look at that further yeah something like that again trying to like do these things with publicly available data in pdf powerpoints is um <laughs> frustrating yeah. that would be my like best idea yeah from data is to disaggregate i it just got my attention you said there are all these clinics yeah and they all report in so right there there's like several things to disaggregate oh already yeah if you can find those data because that would help with your n equals four <laughs> quite a lot okay and n equals four cyclones no no, no, no. <laughs> i know but it's obviously not one place right. so you can get a yeah. lot of richness out of what you just said yeah yeah so like the issue uh with this mou that's put in the universe basically the like i said the government of bangladesh runs this refugee camp, which is unique because usually the UN is responsible for running refugee camps. Um, and it's not only unique, but it's frustrating because they are the ones who ultimately sign off on everything. And they are obviously invested in the welfare of the refugee population, but they're also invested in looking good. And so if a researcher came in and said, holy cow, the rates of diarrhea in the camp are like exponentially what they are outside of the camp. That looks bad on the government of Bangladesh, you know? So like we have to think about how to navigate that relationship a little bit. That leads yeah. into what I was going to ask. I was curious on the level of interest in uh, 
like government organizations in Bangladesh, or if there were like local governments um, who had like more of a hand in things, um, which could affect your research there. Yeah. Um, so all government, so most governments with like high GDPs, like the US, Australia, um, Great Britain, are invested at some level in that they like ship over food and supplies and that sort of stuff. At the local government level, my understanding is it's a very limited hands-on approach. They do things like they provide security in the camp. Um, but in terms of actual donation of aid, they do very little because they are, you know, a, a low middle income country themselves. They're not really able to provide a lot. I was just curious, you, you had some rates of E. coli in some of the water supplies. Mm -hmm. Are there ongoing efforts to monitor water quality or is that there like a point in time that was assessed? Because I'm sure that the there would be significant fluctuations after flooding. Mm -hmm. and Yeah, so those are um, ongoing efforts. Mm -hmm. And those that's um, part of the household indicators that I say like I want to use, but I don't totally know how to use. You know, I don't know how to, yeah, I don't know how to combine that type of data with the infrequent camp-wide data that we have. So I think like getting that unit analyses of the diarrhea and then being able to combine it with the water quality is like the key. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering too if the so it sounds like the water quality data is spatially explicit. Uh yeah. Um, wonder if maybe I guess part of the problem of the cyclones is only four of them, but I wonder if you could Cyclones obviously they have passed a certain bar to be a cyclone, but there's a lot of other events, weather events that are not quite cyclones, but along a continuous scale. And I wonder if using kind of both like weather data and then satellite data to look at standing water and stuff, if you could actually look at kind of just just those between E. coli and standing water or various levels of storms. Yes. And then it doesn't go all the way to the kind of diarrhea, but it, it goes at least into say, oh, there's more E. coli or less E. coli based on the amount of in different places based on standing water or storms or kind of lesser, lesser than cyclones. And that's a way of kind of getting some more of that data. Yeah, I love that idea. Um, I don't totally know how to do that with the standing water bit with, you said satellite? Yeah, so there's a bunch of satellite data that could estimate that. Cool, I'd love to pick your brain on that. Yeah, yeah because I think that, I mean, in, in the absence of being able to say like, this number of diarrhea outcomes, which may or may not be important because those are the people who are even showing up to the clinics. Like maybe they're too sick to show up to the clinics um, or maybe they have to care for their little kid or an elder or something. Um, maybe then asking a proxy question of E. coli is the way to go, particularly if there's the information there. Yeah, thank you for um, the presentation. I have just uh, two questions. The first is uh, with regard to the forest cover. Mm -hmm. So at what level or um, is it just per settlement or per location or do you have some kind of a scale where you are considering the uh, forest cover data? This is the first one. And the other one is, I don't know if it makes sense, but it is going to be an alternative uh, to compare this group with closely similar cases from other sites which were displaced for some reason, so that you will have a kind of comparison in a way that there is natural disaster here, but not somewhere, mm -hmm. or there is um, this social benefit somewhere, but 
that it's not available in this case. So maybe just a kind of uh, control group if you have, and maybe you may use some kind of one variable like an instrumental variable in order to address the confounding factors. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Like find a similar refugee camp, figure out what's different. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Thank you. Um, to answer your forest cover question, uh, basically Jillian got the outsides of the camp boundaries and um, did the, and by camp boundaries, I mean all of the camps and um, just looked at the true forest cover within the camp boundaries. The next steps will be looking at the actual catchment areas around that. Um, but she said just like a quick and dirty look um, at the catchment areas didn't show much deforestation over time. So it'll be interesting to see what actually comes out of that. But I would have thought that there would have been like a lot of tree cutting for firewood use and that sort of stuff. Um, but again, she said just quick and dirty, hasn't seen much of that. TBD. Is there any like advocacy work taking place in Myanmar to like talk to like speak with the government about allowing the Rohingya community to stay and not like increasing the population of the camp? Yes, um, there's huge amounts of international pressure on them to do so, but they, um, yeah, it's very complicated because they are saying that nothing's happening. They are like completely pretending like this Rohingya crisis does not exist. Mm -hmm. They're not allowing humanitarian responders in um, Rakhine State, which is where the Rohingya are. So in order for a humanitarian response to happen, like in order for you to go in as a humanitarian responder, the government has to invite you in and say like, yes, we, we need help. And um, then they need to provide you access to the area. And there's definitely like a huge, very blatant genocide that's happening, but the government is literally like, no, nothing's mm -hmm. happening here. And then when people say, we wanna come in and help out, they're like, no, you can't come in. And so having um, news reporters get in has been really difficult. Having any sort of health intervention like Doctors Without Borders going has been really difficult. And also trying to convince them that they should stop the genocide has been like impossible. Um, and it's highly, highly political. You know, there's even like the Pope won't even come out and say things like don't you know, this is genocide, this is happening. Aung San Suu Kyi, who used to be this like major, she was the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize and everyone used to be like, you're awesome. And now she's like, nothing is really happening here. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? You know? So it's highly political and driven by a lot of cultural things. It's a long-winded answer to your question. Yeah, that, no, that was great, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, how is the data for a QR diagram like they're aggregated on like ages? Do you have like under five? Nope. It exists. Right. I don't have it. I'm just also wondering, sort of in the vein of like reporting and people going, if you have one kid that's sick, you might be able to take them to a clinic. But if all of a sudden, like you might see a decline mm -hmm. in under five and something like a weird trend like that. Totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, like even me right now. Both of my kids are homesick. The one of them we took to the doctor and they were like, he's got RSV. And the other one, I'm like, you got RSV, you're good. You know, like it's maybe you shouldn't be saying that. <laughs> <laughs> They're fine. Um, 
there's no like treatment for RSV. It's just like every kid gets it. They have a cough, you give them Tylenol. So I'm like, obviously that's what the other one has too, but I didn't take him to the clinic. Um, so exactly, you're right. Which is why I love this like E. coli idea of just a proxy indicator. Yeah. Do mortality data for the refugee camps as a whole? Because that mm -hmm. might also capture people who never made it to a clinic. Right. And if there are more children dying, you know, in association with an up, uptick in diarrheal cases, you mm -hmm. might be able to capture a, you know, a higher rate than is just being seen in the clinic. Yeah, yeah, we have that. Yeah. Good idea. Um, all these things about the missing cases, even though I'm the first one to bring it up about, you know, it's just about coming to clinics. I guess I would say for the questions you're asking, you're trying to compare time or compare places maybe, hopefully. Mm -hmm. I feel like the number of people showing up at a clinic with diarrhea is going to be a pretty good proxy for the number of cases in a relative sense. It's yeah. probably a misunder it's not underestimated in an absolute sense, but for comparing things, it's not hard to assume that whatever underreporting is probably relatively constant. Exactly. So even though I brought it up, I actually don't think for the questions you're asking, it's that big a deal. Mm -hmm. But then I have another thing I wonder about. So, you know. I've been part of groups that have worked on diarrhea and forest cover too. And it makes me wonder what you sort of hypothesize the link is between forest cover loss mm -hmm. and diarrhea, mm -hmm. especially if almost everybody gets their water from underground. Right. Good question. So, I mean, there's two major pathways it could be, right? It could be that true forest cover loss makes it better in the sense that there could be more permeability into the ground. It could be, but what I think it probably is, is tree forest cover loss makes it worse and that the watersheds are worse. Mm -hmm. um, and then with the, the hand pumps, they're shallow. And so with all the flooding that happens, we hypothesize that there's a lot of contamination that okay. happens and a lot of standing water that is impacting the latrines that then impact the, the hand pumps. Yep. So Less than with surface, the surface water is mixing with whatever groundwater they're pumping. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. We think. Yeah. It's super reasonable, I'd imagine. Yeah. Especially if they're shallow. Yeah. They're super shallow. Um, yeah. I was wondering when you're visiting places that are highly violent and there's a lot of disease going around, how do you protect yourself? Like, what are there safety protections that you use? Ooh, good question. Um, yes. There are safety precautions in that you only really stay at like places that are vetted. Um, so for example, in South Sudan, I stayed in a container, which, you know, like those containers that you see at job sites, they're windowless. It was really hot, but they had guards around all the time with barbed wire fence, that kind of thing. Um, it's really impossible to like disguise yourself as a white foreigner showing up. Um, so people know that you're there, but generally in these contexts, people are very used to foreign aid workers and, um, there's usually a protocol that, to follow to help keep people safe and trusted drivers, um, trusted places to eat and so on and so forth. I will not be going back to South Sudan probably ever. Maybe when the kids go off to college. Yeah. You mentioned kind of like the ultimate purpose that oh maybe there be some indicators or kind of more advanced warning systems. I don't know if you can talk more about like if if all this research like you get all the answers that you can like what what are the types of changes that you hope this might kind of lead to? Yeah, the early warning system is like really what I'm hoping. We saw like I think the COVID example is a good one in terms of the distribution of resources and the 
detracting resources from important initiatives. So we see like, you know, COVID strikes, everyone puts all their attention and their money into COVID clinics, but then a cyclone hits and we see a spike in diarrhea and the cholera unit doesn't have anyone to staff it, something like that. So being able to have some sort of like advanced warning to be able to um, allow people to make proper decisions regarding staffing and resources in the context of climate change. I'm sorry, I was just gonna say that if the aqua tabs aren't, if people aren't comfortable using them, or I was wondering about stuff like the life straw, like the cheap um, yeah. location devices. Maybe, and maybe I'm cynical. I don't know. I feel like getting people to do that would be really hard. Convincing them to do it, keeping them functioning, distributing them would be really, really hard. But it's a cool idea. Just, just uh, trying to do like cultural changes in general in these complex humanitarian settings is like really difficult. People know what they want, they know what they like. It's kind of like trying to change someone's political beliefs in the US, like they're, it's really hard to do. Um, not impossible, but like pretty challenging. Maybe um, one factor, a human disturbance or livestock disturbance, how do you think you can control I mean, because forest cover, is it forest cover is going to be your proxy for controlling disturbance or human and livestock, I mean, the failure which comes from human population and livestock population. Can you say that last part, the, part I mean, the, the forest cover mm -hmm. is one indicator for environmental or ecosystem service right. that is regulated or controlled the water. For, to get quality water made. So how do you think will be controlled? Uh, how do you control the effect of humans and population increase in the area? Good question. I don't know by just adjusting for that in the model. Like we have the total population numbers of the ins and the outs. We don't have the populations of the host communities. I don't know, maybe we'd be able to do that with some sort of satellites. Do you have, do you have any ideas? Maybe agricultural activity or uh, around the watershed or yeah. near the, the settlement areas. Yeah, maybe. I don't think that there is a lot of agricultural activity in the area, but I think that trying to, we could probably use the GIS to be able to try and account for that in some way. Because I do think that that could probably be important with runoff, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Good question. Do, do you have like do you have information on birth rate? I don't know if we have that, to be honest. Um, we just have like population numbers, but I do think that that would have an impact in that kids tend to get diarrhea more. Um, I'll definitely have that. Good idea. Yeah, it's a bit personal. Um, so you don't have to answer, but I'm just wondering how you deal with this, like being there. Um, it's very heavy to watch kids when they're sick. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a good question. I think that the hardest part is like the like struggling with the morals of it all of like, you know, I, I go to these places and then at the end of the day, I come home and like, you know, I have my cute little kids and my glass of wine and my nice bed and it's just struggling with what that all means and like why I'm able to do that that's the hardest part of it and the way that i've been dealing with that has been um 
trying to build capacity rather than relying on like myself as a public health practitioner or humanitarian responder of building the capacity of these populations to be able to do this stuff themselves and ultimately like work me out of a job is I think what the plan would be. But yeah, heavy question, heavy answer. I don't really like have a good answer other than it is hard and it's really difficult to think about. <laughs>